Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Mazelle, and this is Dandelions. Today's episode features HLS3L Joey Bowie. Joey is from Australia, but went to college in Abu Dhabi, is effortlessly cool, but also genuinely warm, and wrote a book of short stories that has been published internationally. In answering my questions about the family history her book is loosely based on, Joey speaks to the nuance that accompanies an inherited identity and gives us a unique window into the black box that is the creative process. I think you can understand why I am so excited for you to meet Joey. I'm really, really grateful that you're here today. And I'm really excited to get to talk to you about kind of your life before HLS, but also for you, it seems from what I understand, there's kind of a nexus between life before and during because of your book. Um, But before we get to that, I kind of have a theory that you can learn like almost everything about someone, if not have like a jumping off point um, to learn everything about someone by asking this question, which is like, what was your childhood dinner table like growing up? Like what would little Joey expect when come dinner time to happen? Well, that is a good question. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very proud of it. Um, Okay, so I'm from a small family. I'm an only child. So it'd be my mom, my dad, me. Um, I think the most typical dinner we had was like rice with like a sauteed water spinach and Mm. tofu. Um, Yeah, my my dad and I just like really like tofu and vegetarian food. He actually lived in a temple for a really long time. Um, and I was told that when I was little, I refused to eat meat until really? I was forced. Yeah. So I could have been a natural vegetarian. That's what I'm, that's what I'm regretting now. Um, but if I were to fast forward to Joey of today or like the Joey of the last few years, um, spoiler alert, you've written a book, <laughs> which is absolutely, I, I like still can't really wrap my mind around that, um, being as young as we are and to like have it be published and go through all of that. How, how much of the story is, I don't want to say real versus fake, but like, where does it come from? Yeah. Um, so it is a lot based on some interviews that I conducted in Vietnam specifically for the book. I spent a summer traveling from like the South to the North of Vietnam and just talking to as many people as I can, um, but then, of course, a lot of it is just from my like own personal history and knowledge of Vietnam. My parents were Vietnamese refugees, and I would hear stories from them and their friends growing up. Um, and other bits are just from um, my travels. So there's a story about Nepal in there and about Buenos Aires and about Abu Dhabi, you know, places that I've lived. Going to the question of like your parents um, and what you learned growing up, how was your history communicated to you? Like what was considered, let's say like normal in your perspective of the world that when you kind of grew up, you realized was distinct to your parents' experience? Yeah, my my mom especially was really um, determined that I understand our family history. And I think that's why it just took such a hold on me. Like um, when she was considering names for me, she considered naming me T Nan, 
which means refugee in Vietnamese. No way. Yeah. Oh, that's like was, as literal as it gets. You're I right. know. <laughs> and she was like, it kind of sounds like Tina, so it's okay, right? <laughs> um, but then she ultimately decided that that's too much of a burden to put on me. <laughs> um, but yeah, she always told me a lot of stories and I was a curious kid and I was interested in it. Um, so I asked a lot of questions and I just kept doing that my whole life. Um, and what were these stories? Like what, you know, obviously I, you couldn't even begin to describe their entire experience or life, but are there any particular kind of anecdotes about their experience in your family history that kind of are at the top forefront of your mind? I think something that sticks out a lot to me um, are the stories about when they were on the refugee boat itself, uh, because that was just, I think that was physically the hardest time for all of them. Like it was, if you see, if you look up pictures of these boats of Vietnamese refugees, they were so crowded that people just fell off because of the crowdedness and they died. Um, And people were packed like on top of each other. And it was like, suffocating and my mom would tell me like people just like urinated and defecated on top of each other and like got diseases and like were starving the whole time um and these are boats from where to where just like historically if you could like put us in in the time period for people who may not know as much as they would want or should about that time period yeah so um the vietnam war ended in 1975 when saigon fell and america withdrew um so after that a communist regime was implemented the country plunged really really deeply into poverty and so in the years after that war ended um, that's when a lot of vietnamese tried to escape and also because people on the opposite side of the war were being um captured and put in internment uh re-education camps and tortured so I think my parents left in about 1981. Together? They separately. They went separately. with their families. Okay. So they d- didn't know each other at that time? They actually went to high school together in Vietnam. Oh, no way. And they caught up later in Australia. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, what a story. Yeah. Like, what is it like Like when, when a story is obviously, I mean, you were going to be named refugee essentially it's it's not in you know it is it has created such a foundation of your life what is it like for someone to to have to explain it to someone in the way that I just asked you to do um I think I do like explaining it because I, I think it's good if people are just like find out more about what Vietnamese refugees went through um and kind of like understand like these refugee and immigrant stories are so close to our lives you know like it's like it's my parents it's your friends it's like people that we know and like people suffered so close to us it's not some far away news story so I like talking about it you like talking about it and obviously you like writing about it um Mm because it is like the content of your book as we just heard 
but with your book, you chose to go the nonfiction route. Is that correct? Or the fiction route? Sorry. <laughs> I li- you know, in my mind, it's so funny. I'm 24. I go to Harvard Law School and I still have to go not fake and fake in my mind. Like, you know, when they teach you in preschool, like not fiction is not fake. I still have to literally do that every time. And I did it wrong. So there we go. I feel like that's a confusing way to remember. It's so it. ridiculous. <laughs> I'll, I'll be the first one every day to kind of rag on that. Um, but yeah, what, what kind of made you go down that, that angle instead of more like a journalistic approach? Yeah, so it's definitely fiction. Um, and, <laughs> and first of all, it's like, fiction is my specialty. It's like, oh, it's what I've always wanted to do since I was a kid. I was always writing stories. Um, so it's just like the most obvious form to me. But when I first kind of got the idea for this project I actually thought it would be more journalistic Mm. I did a bit of journalism in college and I initially imagined this kind of like way more political angle of approaching it but when I started doing the interviews um there was just a lot in the way of nonfiction. like at the time um Vietnam was only second in the world to China in terms of jailing journalists um, at the time you were doing the interviews yeah and wow yeah the communist government is still like extremely punishing right now like more than people expect so they were jailing any dissenters or any people that criticize the current regime criticize communism criticize the government's interpretation of the vietnam war so that's what i was doing and um the people, when I tried to interview people and talk to people about it, they were just too nervous to speak. Mm. Um, so that was one thing that got in the way. And and then like, slowly I found out that even when I got people to speak to me, uh, it's not exactly that they wanted to espouse some political position or like some revisionist history or like anything political. They were really just recounting very personal stories mm. about who they loved and like what they regretted and what they missed during those times. And I thought fiction was an overall better way to, to get to what I really wanted to talk about. What did you learn most from that process of, of kind of interviewing other than like the political situation and and how difficult it would be, but like on a personal level, as someone who grew up in Australia um, with refugee parents, what, what did you hear and learn from the people who were still there and from what they had lost and loved and regretted? Yeah, so the people that were still there, they really, the biggest thing they taught me was a lot of them had moved on. Hmm. And I think later I would hear that this is something refugees experience a lot, that they're kind of like when they escape or leave their country and they move somewhere else, they're sort of like frozen in that time. In their country, right? Like it's a big theme across different migrations that like they remember Vietnam or Cuba or Iran, the way that the way it was when they left and like the politics that it was when they left. Mm. And they're like still very passionate and emotional about those politics and whatever it was that caused them to leave. And of Mm. course, understandably, but um, the people that I spoke to that were left behind in Australia, like even from the same side of the war, so many of them had moved on and like they barely had an opinion about the war anymore and they didn't have any hostilities toward America 
um, and they were learning to to like live under this new government and it was just like their attitude is that's that's just what it is life isn't horrible and if your parents are you know of the kind of former category which my parents being Iranian refugees I can very much I think that's like a very great and accurate kind of description of being kind of frozen in time what was it like for you to kind of confront this alternative way of looking at things and reconciling that with your parents's perspective and and how kind of raw it still was for either your parents or other people that you knew back in Australia? I think it personally made me a lot less angry about the whole Mm. thing Um, because I inherited a lot of my parents' anger and um, hostilities. At who or what? At at the communist regime Mm. um, and the government in place. And I think it, it was, I guess also because I was young, it was very black and white for me. Um, and then when I, like the interview process made me think like I, it's all, it's not black and white. It's a lot more complicated. People are learning how to live with it and I can still have problems with it, but, um, but I don't know, sympathize a lot more. And I think it's like, this is cliche, but it's the simple act of talking to people on the other side of the war, right? Like we grow up hearing about all of this suffering and pain and all these problems and they're so close to us and so obvious to us. And I think a natural response is to to want to fix that or like to do anything to help with that. Mm. So we see that need so urgently. Um, and I, hmm, I, I think there could be this element of it that might sound less healthy, um, yeah. where you feel a lot, or at least I felt a lot of guilt for yeah. being so privileged. Like my parents went through horrible poverty and suffering and prison and like refugee camps. And I just have like a pretty nice life in Australia. Like, how do you, how do you reconcile that? I think that's the thing. That's like such a tense thing to grow up in and to deal with. So I think that's a huge part of why I'm like, I have to do something about it. I have to help. I, I think you put it so, so perfectly. And just hearing you say that, it makes me think sometimes too, that because it is such a part of your identity, right? Like from what you were going to be named to the food that you ate, to the conversations that you had at dinner, you talk about it in your essays and in, you know, your that's, that's part of who you are. And so at least for me, it's like so much of their struggle is why I am where I am today, just in the worldview that it gave me. And it feels self-indulgent in a sense to then, Oh, I'm at Harvard law school because of in a weird twisted way. Yeah. I, I think I definitely went through phases of this. Um, I think when I was about sophomore or junior year, I started to resolve, like, I'm never going to bring this up again. I don't want anyone to think that I'm just, like, Mm -hmm. using this story to sound, like, more interesting or to, like, to give me any advantage. And I was like, I swear I won't bring it up again. But I think that was, like, a big – that was just a chip on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. Like, I felt so self-conscious about it when – like, what else will I talk about? Do Do I pretend that I had a completely different childhood than I did? Like, it's not that would that it's not possible like 
what am I going to say? I had ham and cheese sandwiches. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think like I've I think I've gotten over that, and I just want to talk about it as freely as possible, um, and not feel guilty about it because it's sort of like it's sort of like when you think about like will w- would I write a book about like a white girl growing up? Hmm. I mean, I might, but it's just like, it's, it's a stretch for me. It's not the norm for me. It would be like really stepping out of my immediate knowledge and my experience. So it's just natural and the default for me to talk about my own experience. And I guess I'm also just fascinated by the creative process because I, I'm very much of the mind that like whatever creative bone in my body, if I had one has been just like taken away by years and years of like school and like law and whatever. But (laughs) what is it, what is it like for you? I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous question, but like, how does it, if I I were to be a fly in the wall or like, you know, whatever that is in Harry Potter, where I go enter your brain and like sit there and, and like, you know, watch it happen. Like what, what is that process like for you writing these not real kind of stories? Um, I think the process is different with each story or each project. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, with Lucky Ticket, I it was very interview driven, mm-hmm. and I think that helps. Like I, I really like that part of writing. It was like uh, the, my ideal like vision of myself is to be a writer adventurer. Oh my um, gosh, I love that. What do you mean by that? It sounds amazing, right? So, yeah, like I want to be a writer adventurer. Great. Yeah, just go out on the ground, go on adventures and write about it. And it, it sounds pretty simple, but uh, like a lot of writers don't base their writing like immediately on interviews on the ground or from like from going to a place or exploring. It can just be like totally cerebral. Um, and, and some stories are like that, uh, but I think that's what like helps jig my uh, creativity. And in, you know, in your ideal world of writer adventure, which is 100% how I will now see you, it's going to be like Joey Bowie writer adventure <laughs> in my phone. Um, what What's next? Like, what is your next writer adventure? You know, the last one took you through Vietnam. Um if you could snap your fingers, what would be, what would be next in a post COVID world? Uh, yes. Um, I would really like to work on a novel next. I'd love to get started next year, right after I graduate. Um, and before I start work, ideally. And I, um, my uncle has this apartment in the middle of Saigon that he said I could use the next summer, um, for writing. So I'm hoping that will work. And I'm also hoping to do a trip um, to like this part of the country. Not to say that this is what the book is about, but maybe just to inspire me because I'm not really sure what I'm going to write about. Um, there's a region or a city called Rat Ya in Vietnam. And that's um, where there used to be a jail where they held Vietnamese who tried to escape and the first time that my mom tried to escape the country she was caught and she was held in that jail for months oh my gosh yeah and it's sort of a blur to her actually she can't say much about it because she just got sick immediately and she was like sick the whole time um 
and my grandpa would like travel from Saigon to Ratya to like to to like bring money to the guards to bribe them to give her like medicine and food. Um, so I'm just interested in going to that area. So you've it, never been? No, it, there's nothing, you know, like the jail is gone now. Um, and the town is just like a really small rural town now. There's not much going on. There's not much reason to go there. So I thought wow. it could just be interesting to see what's left of it. Have your parents been back? Like, had you gone back before with them, before your, your book research? To this region? To Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Like growing up, we went as often as we could afford. I think like every three or four years or something. Yeah. So it was it was still part of like actual Vietnam was part of your life in a way, even though you were from Australia or in Australia for most of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, those trips are really important to me. Um, and I, eh, as again, it sounds cliche, but I did feel really connected to it. It's not good. I mean, I, I, as people will notice if they ever listen to more than one episode, I'm a big fan of cliches. I just think that like, it's because you you can't explain it, right? It's a cliche because that's like our best attempt at explaining like, yeah, you fit in, you felt connected. Like, and we all, you saying that brings up a feeling in me. Like, I know what that feels like also. It's like when you just kind of feel at home Um, in a really weird way, because I can't go back to Iran at this stage, like, I do a lot of work with refugees in Greece from mm-hmm. Iran and the Middle East and the refugee camps in a really strange sense are the closest that I've ever felt to that. And my mm-hmm. sister and I talk about this all this time, all the time. It's like this very weird longing to go back in part. Yes, of course, because the work that we're doing is, you know, as you know, like incredibly important and close to home, but part of it's also just that's a place where we walk around and people are speaking our language and people, you smell mm. the foods in the streets. And it's odd because it's an, a refugee camp in Greece and not Iran. Um, but yeah, I know exactly. You can't really explain it. You kind of just feel at home. Mm. Um, so I'm just curious about the writing process a little bit more. Um, you ground your your stories in actual stories and like interviews. Um, but what is what does it feel like for you to write? And what does like the, the medium of writing kind of offer you um, in your life and in that, that no other medium kind of does? I think that describing the writing process, I think a lot of other writers feel like, like this as well, that you're scared of jinxing it because it's mm-hmm. like this like if ephemeral thing to grasp and you're kind of constantly scared that it'll just like slip out and... It was all a fluke, or at least that's how I'm starting to feel right now. Um, a year after my book comes out, it's been a bit long. Um, you feel like you're jinxing, like if you talk about or explain it, you're going to jinx it? Or what, what exactly? Or just like I might say this whole thing about the writing process and how uh, it works. I see, I see. And then I won't be able to do it. It feels like, like so far I've written short stories and not a whole novel yet. So I would get an idea for a short story, like some seed, and it might be like a hook or a seed about a character or like just just a vague idea, like disappointing someone that you were supposed to protect or like a f- nice phrase or a place. Um, and then I just be developing it in my mind, like for for a long time. 
and then suddenly it all clicks and it usually clicks when I can hear the character's voice really clearly in my head. Um, and I think like if you read Lucky Ticket, it's very, very like character voice driven. It's, they're usually speaking in first person. So like the character's voice is a huge part. And once I can hear like just like the way they speak and their like inflections and the like phrases they use and the idioms they go to and stuff like that. That's when it clicks and then and then I sit down and write it out. And that part is usually quicker. Um, yeah. What is it what does the process look and kind of feel like of, of pitching these personal stories to publishers like who are in it for business, <laughs> essentially? <laughs> yeah, I've I've never pitched an idea um, for a story. Okay. No, I mean like yeah. the book. For lucky ticket itself, or oh, you not pitch that either. Oh my god! Yeah, it's impossible to pitch books. Um, no one, <laughs> no one wants your book. Um, so I okay. After, after I finished writing, um, I was in Australia and I just submitted individual stories to like magazines and journals, um, and I got to like slowly know the Melbourne literary scene more and get more involved and they would ask me to do like certain journals would hold readings of a new issue um and they'd ask me to read and just go to parties and like go to the emerging writers festival um and then eventually um my state victoria's kind of literary center held a reading called the next big thing and they had four authors and three of them were like established kind of like famous authors who were winning awards that year. And I think like to be like next best thing, next big thing, they just needed someone young so that they could be like in touch with like the young generation. <laughs> that was you, enter Joey yeah. Bowie. <laughs> so they were like, okay, she's new, she's young. Um, let's add her to the mix. And I did the reading. And then afterward, one of the authors um, talked to me and I was telling him about my book and stuff. And he said, you know, if, if your book is as good as the story that you just read, then I'd be happy to read it and pass it on to my editor. So that's oh just how gosh. it happened. Yeah. And so you spend so much time on this, the, you know, your stories, you go read them, it gets to the publisher, great success, they're interested. And then it's like out in the world and it's like a, your baby and now it's just like out there. Um, was the, I, I would be terrified I would be so I mean this podcast I've spent like probably one eighteenth of the time you spent on the book and the thought of like pushing send on any of these episodes makes my stomach just like lurch um what was it like for you I I'm sh I'm sure I was nervous but honestly I was just so excited that that was predominating it was my dream it was my dream come true um so I was just really happy and I think like before the book came out, before I got a deal, a publishing deal at all, I was just so moved any time that anyone read my writing, um, even if they hated it. I just think it's like so cool that I wrote something and someone would read it because it's still rare to get that. You know, like oh, no one's yeah. going to read random stories that you wrote. Like no one, if you just say to someone, like, do you want to read a short story I wrote? It sounds so unappealing. Would it be a right, a correct kind of 
reading to say that it's even harder to say, hey, do you want to read a short story that I read that I wrote about refugees? Like, I, it's hard enough to get people to pay attention to that, like, as millions of refugees are, like, landing on the shores of, you know, Greece or on the U.S. border. So, like, be like, hey, do you want to, in your free time, read this, you know, story about this? I can imagine it's, like, even harder to pitch that to people. Yeah, you know, it's such, it, it's really weird how this topic is being treated. Um, I think, in a sense, Sometimes people would be interested in it because, I don't know, war and migration in itself is is interesting. Um, and people might be interested in a story because of that. But I think the bad part of it is when they just cast it aside as like its own its own category or its own niche. And it can't just be like literature. It can't just be a really good story that is about migration. Um I think that's what happens with a lot of sort of like ethnic literature that people will just put it on the side. as like, okay, that's interesting because it talks about, you know, like Pakistani people, but, but it's not, I don't know. I wouldn't call it like great literature. I think that's the, uh, the attitude that a lot of people have toward these sorts of stories. And that's, it's, it's, it's a, it's a shame um, because sort of like what we were talking about before like this is my normal what else am I going to write about it's natural for me to write about this yeah it, it's such a it's like a catch-22 you know it's like if you write about it, it you're kind of being asked to do like 15 things at once um like make it appealing to a wider audience make it and make sure it's true to your own experience and your narrative and your your upbringing and then make it you know not feed too much into that so that it becomes this like trope or this fetishization of that experience um i can imagine you're just like walking many tight ropes at once yeah i think the risk is when people dismiss i mean it's already problematic to call it ethnic literature so like the problem is when people dismiss literature that is not about like the typical white american experience um as something like a ethnography is that am i using the right word from sociology i i truly <laughs> fiction and nonfiction are like too high of a, of a bar for me as an audience <laughs> okay yeah so like when people only think it's interesting for a sociological reason yes like, yes 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 yeah. I see you. Like this just gives me information about what vietnamese people eat um but it's not literature hmm. so that's that's the risk Hmm. And I think that to understand like that, because I can imagine someone coming back and saying, oh, you should just be grateful someone's reading your book. Um, but as which you said, you know, you are, even if they don't like it. But I think on a more human level, like to understand why there is that sentiment, you kind of really have to think about what it was like for you to grow up with parents who had to actually endure that situation and who were actually on those boats um, and lived that experience and raised you like in that image and with those stories. Um, so I guess I was just wondering or hoping that you could speak to that a little bit more. I think like we did touch on it before that it was always something I was curious about and that I always wanted to hear more about. Um, and, and then there's, we also talked about, 
that feeling of guilt. Um, I had this obsession with my own privilege when I was about a freshman. Um, In college. Yeah, like I had just started college and left home and suddenly like my life was so great and I had a scholarship so I didn't have to worry about money anymore. And, and it was just like, I, I was kind of messed up about it now that I look back, like I could not deal with it. Like I couldn't deal with going out with my friends and thinking like, this is something that my parents could just like not do. They can't spend like this. And like when my friends asked if I wanted to go to somewhere for spring break, it was just like crazy to me. I was like, I I can't, I I can't, I was just like so consumed, so not okay with, with like having all of these things and spending this money. And it lasted a long time. It was bad. I was like in sophomore year, I started like sending all the money I could save home. And like, I, I just got, I struggled with it. Um, and having like this education my parents don't have and like speaking this language that my parents don't speak and like meeting all these cool people when like my dad at the time was a janitor or in and out of work and my mom was um a factory worker and she still is now it's just like the difference is so jarring and I guess that doesn't even have to be an immigrant story it's just like a class story um but that I think that was what I struggled with the most, even more than like the specific like war and like refugee camps. Um, Cause I think like that's, that's still what stuck with us for all of my, all of my life. Um, and yeah, like specific to the refugee stories, I remember like in, in a more, much lighter tone. Um, like growing up and any time that my mom would freak out about me not getting good grades, I would just think like, why do you care so much about this when you didn't used to have food to eat? Like there are bigger problems. <laughs> That's a big comeback. Like mom, my A minus is enough. Oh my gosh. She wasn't even happy when I got an A. She no would say, way. Yeah. She would say, like, that's your job. You're supposed to get an A. Do you want me to congratulate you about that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, are, yeah. so like, it's that's so interesting because then, like, your scholarship and coming to Harvard Law, like, it, it's privilege, but it was also, like, expected in a way. Is that fair to say? Like, it's not like, do they view it as, like, oh, my God, you've overcome all of these odds and you're so lucky? Or is it just, like, and? Oh, no, no, not at all. It was like, it was like beyond anything we could have imagined. Like this was just like this A is like about third grade. And my parents expected me to go to Melbourne Uni and they thought I would be a, like ideally a teacher, Mm -hmm. Um, ideally for small children. Um, And I think like after year seven, they were just bewildered by the things that I wanted to do. And I, where did it come from? I don't know, really. Uh, I think it all started when I went to NYU Abu Dhabi and it really like broadened my idea of what I could do. Cause I really like did not 
know about opportunities or like, yeah, like I have access to them. Um, but then a recruiter from NYU Abu Dhabi came to my school and talked about it and it just sounded so cool and adventurous. And I was a big like fantasy kid. Um, <laughs> so it really caught me. And then when I got to that school, like really like my, my life changed and it, it's part of that whole privilege thing I was telling you about. Suddenly yeah. I had so many opportunities and people thought I could do anything I wanted to, which is just not what I was raised on at all. <laughs> it's like, um, I think that's another thing about immigrant parents that I know some other people have. Like, you don't have parents that tell you you can be anything you want to be. You have parents who tell you, like, this is this is going to be a safe path. Let's just stick to this mm-hmm. and make sure we're okay because we could easily not be okay. You always have to have, like, a, a backup plan that is, like, so, so secure. Um Mm. And usually it's not thought of as a backup plan. It is the plan. <laughs> um, yeah. And how do I guess I, we can kind of close with this in some ways. It's you describe that, that process of like an, an unhealthy obsession with privilege. Um, how, how did you get over it or make sense of it? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure I can say something coherent about this because it was just such a slow burning process of getting mm. over this. I felt, I, I think it really stuck me. And for a while I would not be able to spend any money. I couldn't like enjoy myself on anything. I just felt constantly guilty. Um, and and then I think it's another one of those things where I realized I had a huge chip on my shoulder and I was like upset and angry and actually maybe this is part of <laughs> healing or processing it I had to the worst of this guilt privilege thing was when I had a study away semester in Buenos Aires hmm. um, and my scholarship covered everything um, but I was just like at in the pits of this guilt um, so I was with like all of these other students who like chose Buenos Aires because they wanted to party and I would do nothing and I would just like walk or stay in my room and read and write. Um, And then after that, I went to New York and I discovered slam poetry at the New Yorican Poets Cafe. And that was the first time that I really felt like I'm finally among people who have similar experiences. Like it's, um, it's like, been a really great place historically for minorities in America. Mm. It started with like Puerto Rican people as where the New Rican name comes from. And now it's most, it's mostly black artists that are there and people who are like also poor and also struggling and facing racism and all of that stuff. And they were getting on stage and doing these amazing poems about it. And I got really into that scene as well. And I went on stage and I did so many like angry poems about it. And then oh, after great. a while, I realized like those were really angry poems and, <laughs> and I had to be like, I had to be so angry to do it. I had to be so angry to write these things. And my God, I do have a chip on my shoulder and I have to figure out how to let it go. And that's like, eventually I went, like I calmed down. But that's part of the healing process. As you kind of said, you know, you have to go through all of that because it's inherited trauma and like it, then it becomes its its own iteration of it when it's no longer 
like the, the recovery from the trauma or like the, the emergence from it in that, oh, you have the scholarship, you're, you're have access to all of the things that, you know, you previously and your parents didn't have that in and of itself kind of becomes a traumatic experience, um, which is then becomes a ridiculous experience. Cause like, this isn't actually a trauma compared to what they had to go through. Do you know, uh, I can imagine it's just like the cycle. Um, yeah. I think it, even though it was an angry space, I think it really helped to hear other people going through the same thing. And it it was so much about like everyone sharing and understanding Mm -hmm. each other and helping each other through it. So, so cathartic to just hear someone going through a different iteration of your, of your own experience. Like even just hearing you kind of describe your experience, which is totally different than mine. And in some way similar because we're human, right? Like it, it, I don't know, it just sits well in Mm -hmm. a kind of inexplicable sense. Well, Joey, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on the show. This is so weird. I still don't really know how to do one of these closings. So everyone will have to bear (laughs) with me. Um, But it's been really great. And I would be remiss if I didn't tell everyone to go buy uh, a copy of Lucky Ticket, which just dropped in the U.S. this summer, correct? Yes. Um, it is It is an exquisite book. <laughs> it's a really exquisite book, and I am sure you will enjoy it as much as, as I have. Thank you for listening to Dandelions, a podcast sponsored by student government at Harvard Law School. Dandelions is executive produced by Anjali Banjiri and me, Mazella Dasami. Produced by Sam Harris, Solange Dasami, and Danny Belgrad. The show is written by Sam Harris and edited by Danny Belgrad. Artwork designed by Georgia Salisbury. Special thanks to Christy Jobson, Sam Parker, Sarah DeLorme, Diego Alvarez, Noelle Graham, and Billy Wright. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University. Thanks so much for listening and see you again next time.